0: This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Uh, today, August eighth, twenty twenty one, we are delighted to have George Handley with us. Um, I am Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members: Michael Austin who will be in the background, and Linda Hoffman Kimball, who will be in the foreground, are also part of our group today. Lest you worry, Rebecca Deschweinitz, who is usually with us, is just fine herself, but up all night with a sick child. Um, We are using our webinar format as usual, our webinar format on Zoom, and we're running a live stream on Facebook that is live now. We, and we are recording for your information. For viewers on Zoom, there's a chat. We'll be following the chat and uh, propose answers and questions as they come up appropriate to the lesson. Um, I want to remind everybody that we are in the middle of a major Dialogue Foundation capital campaign. The um, Dialogue had 50, successful years under a subscription model. And now in an internet enabled world, we have found that the subscription model is is dated and we are providing all dialogue format online, free. And in order to continue that for the foreseeable future, the next 50 years, we are um, raising capital to make that work. Uh, There is information about the Sustaining Dialogue program at givetodialogue.com and a special email address for this purpose, sustaining dialogue at dialoguejournal.com. Now today, I'd like to uh, introduce George Hanley, Professor Hanley. Um, George is a professor of Interdisciplinary Humanities at BYU, where he has taught since 1998. His research interests in the area of internet of, of let me back up uh, his research interests in the areas of inner environmental humanities. Sorry, environmental humanities have resulted in various publications in literature and the environment, an environmental memoir, Home Waters, a novel, American Fork, and a recent collection of essays on the env- environmental values of Mormonism entitled The Hope of The Hope of Nature. He is currently finishing a book on the writings of Lowell Bennion. He and his Mm -hmm. wife, Amy, are the parents of four children and grandparents to one new grandson. We're pleased to have Professor Handley with us today. That professor title reminds me to specify that as with every speaker and teacher, we invite speakers for their own voice, for their own point of view and personal insights. Uh, George today speaks for himself not for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, not for BYU, and uh, not for the Dialogue Foundation. Um, We will open today with a beautiful Savior performed by the BYU Men's Chorus with Mac Wilberg conducting, uh, a recording from 2016. And our opening prayer will be given by Joe Benyon. Um, I'm tempted to introduce Joe as a man I trust with my life, which is true. Um, the, uh, the more formal introduction is that Joe Benyon has made pottery since 1974 and has presented in workshops, conferences, and symposiums throughout the United States and abroad. He also has worked as a river guide in Grand, in the Grand Canyon since 2002. He's married to Lee Udal Benyon and they have three remarkable daughters. Um, so that I don't forget at the end, I'll mention that. Our closing prayer will be given by D. Morgan Davis. Um, Morgan Davis is a research fellow at the Neil Maxwell Institute for Religion Scholarship. He holds a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies from the University of Utah, an MA in history from the University of Texas at Austin, and a BA in Near Eastern studies from Brigham Young University. His works in... He works in comparative scripture and comparative theology with a focus on Islam and Latter-day Saint tradition. He's also the founder and co-editor of the Institute's Living Faith book series. Now to the music, uh, Beautiful Savior performed by the BYU Men's Chorus.
1: Beautiful Father, Almighty God, We are thankful to be together gathered virtually for the purpose of uh, being instructed and edified. We thank thee for George and his preparation, not only on this day, but throughout his life as a disciple and student of the restoration. We are thankful uh, for this good earth. For the way she has allowed our embodiment to proceed. Now we pray for thy spirit to be with George and with each of us today that we may give and receive. And that we may be edified and reminded of the things that really matter. We're grateful for scripture and we pray that the spirit in which it was given will be present today. And we give thee praise and thanks in the name of our dear Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: Amen. <clears throat> so would you like me to begin, Chris? George,
0: yes, you're on. I I might mention, because we hear some feedback, that the Facebook feed tends to be a second or two, a few seconds lagged. So uh, if you have Facebook sound on at the same time as Zoom, it will be confusing. I recommend that you do one or the other. <laughs> Go ahead, George. Sorry for that business.
2: Uh, thank you very much, Chris and, and Michael and Rebecca. And uh, thank you, Joe, for that beautiful prayer. Appreciate uh, having you uh, offer that. Um, I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to share some thoughts i was in a writing mood um as i was preparing so i've written some thoughts out uh, my intention is to speak for about 20 minutes or so and then and then um have discussion i assume that there will be people who may want to um offer comments in the chat while i'm speaking which is fine i won't uh, necessarily guarantee that I'll be keeping tabs of that as I'm, as I'm talking, but I'll try, but we can certainly get to questions and discussion points, um, uh, after, afterwards. Um, I love that hymn. I've always loved that hymn. And I love that it, um, really, um, reminds me of the presence of Christ in the natural world, um, but also sort of the supremacy of Christ, uh, that seems to be a, a um, and I love the idea of Christ being beautiful. Um, I, I think that's relevant to what, what I want to talk about today. I've pretty much exclusively focused on section 88, if that's okay. Um, there's just so much there uh, that, that I love and um, I wanted to, to share with you. Um, I, I want to start by just making a few comments about theology, and I hope it's not too academic. I, I understand the purpose of our gathering here is is, um, worship. Um, But there is a a sort of theological issue that that I've uh, wrestled with for some time and read about for some time and find beautifully answered in section 88. And that is the the question of the place of God in the world. Um, That is, to what degree God is in the workings of the world, um, both the natural world and the human world. Um, you know, to what degree is he manifest in the ways in which nature operates and the ways in which human history transpires and to what, what degree is he transcendent of those things? So the, the question in theology is whether God is transcendent or imminent, um, you know, whether he stands above, uh, the world in some uh, radical way or whether he's somehow embedded in it. Um, uh, I, and I, I, I think this is an interesting question that has, um, like I say, an intellectual dimension to it. But for me, it's actually very personally important and spiritually important. And I hope to explain a little bit of, about why that's the case. Um, Let me just tease out some of the implications of this this question of God's transcendence or his imminence. For example, if we argue that God is utterly transcendent, um, we assume that what is most true, most beautiful, and most real lies beyond this world, right? It's sort of a platonic model of God. And we can assume that what happens in this life is but a dream or even a potentially misleading illusion, um, and therefore, we shouldn't overreact right, to things that happen this world, in this world, and, and maybe it isn't as deserving of, of our attention. And we use colloquial language in the church all the time about having an eternal perspective, for example, to talk about the transcendent. Um, the transcendent also allows us to assume that when things go badly, um, we can hope that it is for some higher purpose and higher good. Um, it, it also means that natural events, including the emergence of life through evolution, or beautiful sunsets, or even tragic events um, that uh, might transpire uh, on this earth, like a tsunami, um, may not have a direct relationship to God uh, willing it to happen, or even to God's love. And that maybe makes sense when we when things go badly such as in the case of the tsunami, which we might be reluctant to attribute to God. But when the world seems unspeakably beautiful to us, we might desperately want to believe in its spiritual meaning, that it is a manifestation of God in in some way. And in the same way, if we were to imagine God imminent in the world, it certainly gives us reason to believe in the spiritual value of a beautiful sunset, but it also makes it more difficult to understand the darker aspects of nature, like a tsunami, in, in section 88, we read about God's voice as a voice in the wilderness. And this is actually uh, a figurative, a figure of speech that God himself offers. It is as if a, a voice uh, in the wilderness. He tells us, behold, that which you hear is the voice of one crying, is as the voice, excuse me, of one crying in the wilderness, in the wilderness, because you cannot see him, my voice, because my voice is spirit. I love this. <clears throat> sort of explanation of of a figure of speech in scripture. And it's quite profound. If God is a voice in the wilderness, it means we cannot see him with our natural eyes. But as we look at the wilderness of this world, we also sense him. We hear him, but not with our natural ears. And that's a bit of a paradox. He is and isn't there. This mortal life is a wilderness and we feel his absence, perhaps because he is in some sense transcendent, even as we might begin to sense his presence, because he is also in some other sense, imminent. So the attunement that this requires to hear his voice is also later described as having an eye single to his glory. So maybe even though he is not visible, we should be looking intently for him precisely because he's absent. So there's an interesting uh, bunch of paradoxes to think about there. And I, I, there's a corollary here, by the way, with, with human history. That is, if we imagine God utterly transcends human history, then we can imagine somehow that he stands above all of it. And therefore, we stand to learn little f- about him from history itself, right? History is just a bunch of human mistakes, um, but there's nothing divine uh, that is shaping it for some sort of holy purpose, and what is happening is not as important as what is to come. Utter transcendence inspires a yearning for another world and for an alternative history. It also means that he is utterly in control of everything in this world. Nothing surprises him. And maybe in a sense, we imagine that nothing worries him, nor should it worry us. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit partial to the imminent model, but I think the transcendent model is extremely important. Uh, it comforts us in times of trial, right? Uh, it helps us to understand and trust that there's a higher purpose to something that doesn't make sense, but it can also lead to easy justifications for why certain terrible things seem uh, happen, and therefore we conclude that they seem to be necessary or part of God's plan. If, on the other hand, we imagine that he is imminent in the world and its history, then we stand to learn a great deal about him by studying history itself and by studying human knowledge. And that is where, uh, why in verse 78, he seems to be teaching us to study everything under the sun, so to speak. Let's l- read those words. This is verse 78 teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, that ye may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, and in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God. This is beautiful because what he's about to say is everything that you can learn uh, through secular knowledge or divine is for your moral betterment of things, both in heaven and in earth, under the earth, things which have been things, which are things, which must shortly come to pass things, which are at home, things, which are abroad, the wars and perplexities of the nations and the judgments, which are on the land and a knowledge of countries and kingdoms. So, I mean, that pretty much covers the physical sciences, geology, ecology, uh, political science, history, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a powerful mandate for education in all things secular, which is precisely necessary or spiritually valuable because of presumably God's imminence. We cannot be spiritual. So in other words, we can, in fact, learn something about God by studying those things. There's a delicate balance here, of course, because we don't want to assume that God is equated with human history or equated with natural events, because like I say, that can get us into some really serious theological trouble in a hurry. And we do this a lot, right? We we sort of make glib judgments about you know, the meaning of recent events, the pandemic, or 9/11, or uh, whatever it might be, and we sort of quickly come to some conclusions about the nature of God based on what we see happening in the world, and you know, most often that's just real trouble, right? And and I think there's a reason why it's trouble, and that is because what what Section 88 starts to lay out is a very interesting and complex and ambiguous position of God. He's both immanent and transcendent, and Maybe a little bit like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can't really pin him down because as soon as you think he's imminent, he's transcendent and, and vice versa. So it's uh, an imminent God um, certainly makes secular learning more important. And I think in a theology such as ours that, that places such sacred value on the earth and on its history and on education, uh, we have to conclude that in some sense he is Im- imminent. But he's also somehow transcendent in that when we face the difficulty of having to equate God with everything, um, we we can run into those those that trouble, and a transcendent God again gives us hope for an alternative to the mess we're in. Um, so let me let me just draw your attention to verses seven through thirteen and section eighty-eight, which I think are some of the most beautiful in all of our scripture. Um, I won't read all of them, but I want, I want you to pay attention to the grammar here a little bit. This is the, the verse seven says, this is the light of Christ as also he is in the sun and the light of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made as also he is in the moon and is the light of the moon and the power thereof by which it was made. And, and it goes on, uh, in this, in this light. Um, You'll notice that he's simultaneously above and transcendent and beneath and imminent. He is both in the sun and is the sun. He is both the power that made the sun and is the power of the sun itself. He also stands outside of the sun and the moon and the stars, even as he moves through them. So it's perplexing and confusing at first glance. But what it suggests is a fundamental mystery, perhaps, or at least an unanswerable question about where God is in the world, except that we know he's there somewhere, right? Um, the value of this mystery, I think, is that it makes God, um, it, not that it makes God mystical or inaccessible or uninterpretable, but rather I think it means that we can never afford to ignore the possibility of his presence, uh, um and his um, will in things that happen, but that we should also not rush to judgment about his role and believe that we can pin him down, as it were, um, even, that, even at the same time that we can't ignore him. I think this is beautifully summed up in verse 41, where it says, he comprehendeth all things and all things are before him. So that's a real transcendent God and all things are round about him which actually starts to make it sound like he's in the world, not around it. And he is above all things and in all things and is through all things and is round about all things and all things are by him and of him. So anyway, I just think that's beautifully confusing and, and uh, really wonderful. And I, I, uh, I wanted to read just a passage that I wrote in uh, my book, Home Waters, um, about these verses uh, that, that was a, a, an attempt to try to give some um, personal meaning uh, to, to these verses. Light, this is what I wrote, light is at first a metaphor of Christ, of truth, but then we are told that this truth is both in the light of the sun and moon, and it moreover is that light and also the power by which it was made. The metaphor loses its shape entirely when this light of Christ becomes the very light by which we perceive the physical world around us. I always learned that metaphors were a way of dreaming of likeness between two unlike things. But now I find that the world is inverted, that differences are the real illusions and that metaphors are a way of imagining them. Like that flash of lightning in a kiss, that sudden discovery of ourselves as physical phenomena, as if we are surprised to find ourselves here now on this earth in individual bodies which only suggests that we spend a great deal of our time sensing that we inhabit something more than a body, even if this feels uncannily like home. Joseph Smith seemed to be saying that the discovery of the physical world is not a discovery of our alienation from the divine or a second order of our being, but rather as the men on the road to Emmaus discovered that the divine has place in the very stuff of our physical existence. Only two verses later, he states simply that the spirit and the body constitute the soul of man. It is not insignificant, even if seemingly contradictory, that this ubiquitous divinity would be found in a theology that posits the physicality and situatedness of God. Smith's name for this place, Kolob, is also the name of a canyon in Zion National Park, and anyone who's ever been to that canyon won't argue the point that the name might not be entirely metaphorical the rub is that we see only light's reflection, not light directly. So perhaps we're always having to turn around only to be denied the ability to look directly into the source of our ecstasies. Hope is believing that if I keep turning and absorb enough of light's reflections, I will hold the substance of the whole within the inner eye. So that that's uh, uh, just the, the end of that passage. But I, I just want to say that these, these verses inspire me to no end because they remind me of the reasons why I feel Christ in the natural world, even as I also feel his utter and total absence. And let me see if I can explain what I mean. One of the chief values of natural experiences for me is the experience of my own nothingness, my own insignificance. Nothingness is the scriptural word for it from the book of Moses that I like, but but I think it has to do with a kind of realization as Moses experiences when he witnesses the creation, that man is nothing in comparison to the grandeur of the cosmos. And so there's a kind of utter absence of meaning that I enjoy in the natural world for reasons that I cannot explain, but I long for those moments when I feel that utter indifference of the natural world. And maybe part of the reason why that is valuable to us and maybe even healing to us is that if you are suffering a burden, a sorrow, which all of us are at some point, uh, it, it's, it's good to forget yourself and being in that large cosmos and feeling your insignificance helps relieve that burden. This is the essential meaning of Job's discourse that God gives the discourse that God gives to Job, where he doesn't really answer any of Job's questions, but says, have you thought about the, um, the whale? (laughs) If you, what do you know about the calves, uh, and uh, in, in, in the, in the, the goats in the wilderness and so on. So the very first time I experienced that, that feeling of nature's indifference was when I was 12 years old and saw the Tetons backpacking along the skyline trail and realizing this place that was so stunningly beautiful that I was looking at had absolutely no interest whatsoever in my presence. And it would go on independent of me and independent of everyone else and of everything else without regard or interest in humans. And that was part of its beauty. And yet it was precisely in that feeling of nothingness that I felt the reality and power and presence of God. And that to me is a very profound paradox. And these are the only verses that have ever come close to describing to me why that might be the case. Uh, I I, I think there's also also a a very immediate presence of God in, in nature that is not An utter indifference, but it's a very different kind of experience. And those are experiences not so much maybe in wildernesses, but in places that are all too human, right? They can be our own home, our own backyard, our own um, neighborhood. Uh, They can be your own sacred groves, the places that you go to pray. Uh, For me, that's Rock Canyon, uh, the Provo River. Uh, They become a kind of heaven on earth, places that are so familiar and valuable to us that we want to know it's every nook and rock and characteristic and the beauty and familiarity of such places makes us feel enveloped in God's love. He is in the world undeniably in those moments, even though at the same time we sense he is not of it, but he is the world, but he also comprehends it too. Nature heals both by its indifference, in other words, and I think by its seeming embrace of us it is healing to us because we find god in it but we also sense that this is not all there is and that he transcends it this gives us hope to be met where we are this is this is my sort of spiritual point here this gives us hope to be met by god where we are in our sometimes broken and imperfect physical condition but also drawn to a higher plane of possibility so that for me is why this paradox and or confusion of imminence and transcendence is so personally valuable to me. I will also note uh, that in, in, uh, and I'll wrap up here and and open it up for discussion, but in verses 16 through 18, we read about the power of the resurrection as identified as the same power of creation. I think this is really fascinating. Uh, These verses describe this power as the power that quickens all things, right? Which is to give life to all things. So it's uh, presumably the power of emergence uh, that allows for evolution on, on Earth. This is uh, gives, giving life to all things, and it's the power by which life continually emerges spontaneously and without abatement. But this is also the power by which the poor and the meek shall inherit the Earth. There is, it seems, a cosmic destiny to the world and to human history that these verses signify that will not only redeem the world, that is the physical world, but also redeem society. It is the power by which justice prevails in the end, which is a absolutely essential, in my view, transcendent hope. That is a hope that is often groundless if when one were to look simply at the facts, right, uh, on, on the ground, as it were, at, at, at human history. But it is the home with which Christians must learn to live. There's a risk, of course, that in so believing and trusting, Christians become indifferent to suffering and indifferent to justice because they believe that that transcendent power will eventually take care of everything. And so they trust that no matter what, the right things will happen in the end, and therefore that everything is happening for the best, right? This is utterly foolish and dangerous theology, as Voltaire famously pointed out in Candide. Um, but its opposition or its alternative conclusion should not be that God is not transcendent in any way and is not invested in making sure that justice prevails. We just have to notice how extreme trust in transcendence can end up allowing us to abdicate our own responsibilities to build a world that should resemble heaven. I will also note that these verses teach us that the destiny of the righteous is this planet and not some other location that is far more beautiful or far more desirable than this one. And this, in my view, is one of the most important and beautiful teachings of the Restoration and um, apparently unique in the Judeo-Christian tradition. All of Christianity, and there's much more to say about this, but all of Christianity, to some degree or another in the last 50 years, has been struggling during the climate crisis to try to return believers to an ethics of this world to take better care of the planet and to take better better care of one another. And we as Latter-day Saints are in the midst of the same struggle. But we have fewer doctrinal obstacles to such a return to an ethics of this world than anyone else. Uh, In fact, we have um, quite the opposite. We have strong incentives I would say it's built into the very structure of our, tholo- our theology that we should aspire to want to remain here, that this is the sphere of celestial belonging and justice. In verse 22, we read, he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. Only those, these verses seem to suggest, who have understood themselves to already be in heaven and are already living at heaven, uh, heavenly law Of caring for this planet and for one another are going to be deserving of a chance to remain. We are taught in this this verse that the earth abides a celestial law and that we should also abide that law in order to be deserving of that glory. We will only receive that glory that we are prepared to receive, and that preparation depends upon our willingness to abide that law now. We are not to become a law unto ourselves, as the verses later explain, but should learn to abide the same law the earth abides. So it seems to me that we have a great deal to learn from the study of ecology and geology and the atmospheric sciences, all the earth sciences, and bi- biological sciences, because they um, reinforce again and again in ways that are too beautiful to describe the interdependency of life, the collaborative nature of life, and the ways in which we depend upon and benefit from diversity in all living forms. and the community of all of a diverse and, and, uh, uh, community of living forms. If we come to understand ourselves ecologically, if we come to understand that even the boundaries of our bodies are porous, that we exchange matter with the world on a daily basis and that we benefit and are benefited by the world that we destroy and are destroyed by the world, that we understand ourselves as interdependent and not radically autonomous as our own egos would have us believe, then I think we are getting closer to understanding that celestial law. Uh, finally, I'll just end with these beautiful verses at 45 and 46 and 47. The earth rolls upon her wings and the sun giveth glory by day and the moon giveth her light by night. And the stars also give their, give give their light as they roll upon their wings in their glory in the midst of the power of God. Unto what shall I liken these kingdoms that ye may understand? Behold, all these are kingdoms. All these are kingdoms, and any man who has seen any, or the least of these, hath seen God moving in His Majesty and power. Uh, I think that's just the most beautiful declaration of God's imminence uh, in this world, and the, the the promise that we have of learning something about heaven right here, right now. Uh, I like to think of these verses as reminders that I'm not looking at a fallen world that is far less desirable and beautiful than what awaits, but I'm looking at the very substance of what is to come. The difference in beauty between this world and the next will be a human difference because we will be more beautiful, but I have a hard time believing that has anything to do with the fact that the earth will be any more beautiful so if, if you want streets of gold, give me a break. I would prefer the Provo River. So I'll end there. <laughs> and I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I'm happy to entertain questions or discussion about anything that I've said.
0: George, I, I have a couple of questions in the chat that are... I mean they're wonderful by themselves, but I'm going to try to capsulize the the thread, which I think uh, goes speaks to your point about feeling uh, of nothingness or of insignificance in the face of the canyon or the river. Um, and and by the way, I just looked it up and to see that that plateau that. Ends up creating the Kolob Canyon is thought to be about 150 million years of sediment laid down uh, and then and then worn away. That's a that's a time frame that's that is beyond what I can imagine. I guess that's the point. Um, they, but here's the thread. The questions are: How do we place human beings? How do we place human life in this scope? If you go too far uh in the uh direction of the immensity and and of, of nature of the environment of, of of the sun and the moon i suppose you end up you can end up in a place that says man is nothing and insignificant and to be disregarded a, a, a nihilistic this is uh russell yeah. fox writing a nihilistic point of view um at the other extreme, um, Walter Van Beek says the grandeur is not completely independent of man because, without us, there is no appreciation or meaning. That that man is bringing meaning and to this. Um, there, lay that out for
3: you.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, that's kind of the. I don't know if it's a yin-yang kind of relationship, but that's the interesting tension between transcendence and imminence. Um, I do think when Moses witnesses the creation, um, there are a couple of things that are really important that happen to him in those verses in the book of Moses. He's told that he's a son of God and he's given his divine connection to God In a very clear and powerful way. And yet at the same time, as he witnesses creation, he feels utterly diminished. So there's a there's a tension there. That's a really healthy tension. Because when he awakes from first of all, he collapses, right? It's so overwhelming, he collapses. And then when he gets up, he's immediately tempted by Satan. And I I read that as Satan's sort of stepping in and Saying, well, I'm going to take advantage. Uh, I'm going to try to produce nihilism here. Right, your your insignificance is my vulnerable. It makes you vulnerable to me, so I'm going to tempt you here. And what Moses does is he kind of recoups himself, and he's he's not he's not claiming lordship over the creation. Of course, he's been utterly diminished by it, but he does claim sonship. Right, he does claim a filial relationship to God that allows him to reject. Uh, Satan. So there's there's a um, the, the, in in environmental terms, the way I would put this is that a lot of a lot of environmentalism criticizes Christianity for being too human centered, too anthropocentric, and that Christianity has placed too much value on human life and it hasn't placed enough value on the life of plants and animals, and that human beings have thought too much of themselves for too long, and we've done too much damage as a result, and that we would all learn. You know, we would benefit from learning how to be diminished by nature, right? And so there's an anti-anthropocentrism that has been um, boiling in environmental uh, philosophy for a long time, and that's a very, very fair point. The problem is that you know, if you diminish human life to the point of utter insignificance or you know, radical insignificance, then uh, there's no motivation to choose moral, to make moral choices. So the, the paradox that environmentalism has gotten itself into is that it, it's, it's wanted to push what they call biocentrism um, as, a, as an opposition to anthropocentrism, but it, it's made it challenging for them to argue why human beings ought to care, right? If, if, if I'm so insignificant, and I, at least that's what I'm hearing in the question, if I'm so insignificant, why in the world does it matter what I do? It doesn't matter at all. And so, but that's where the value of religion, I think, for me, um, and the value of God's um, presence in my life in a personal way, um, even though it doesn't make sense to me when I contemplate the stars, when I contemplate wilderness, it doesn't make sense to me that God would be proximate, but He is, and and if I then feel Him as proximate as it, or immediate, He's available to me. Um, that. I think tempers the arrogance that can sometimes accompany being a a human ego, right? Because then I know that my significance is granted by God. It's not anything I earned and God gave us the creation and that it so overwhelms me with gratitude and humility that I want to give. I want to serve. I want to live morally, but if I, if I don't see it as a gift, and I see it instead as something that I earned, or I don't even think about it, um, then of course, I'm going to most likely mistreat it. That is the natural world. And I'm most likely going to mistreat other people, right? Pope Francis articulates that really beautifully in his encyclical on the climate where he says, you know, when we objectify other people and we mistreat the poor, um, we're just engaging in a kind of behavior that is the same moral problem that destroys nature, because we objectify nature. And, we, and we're thinking, he, is, he calls it uh, um, a misguided anthropocentrism. He believes in a kind of human-centeredness that is tempered by the creation. And that's what I think is what happens with, with Moses. So I don't know if that makes sense, if that answers the question. But I, for me, on a personal level, I would just say, it's that paradox of feeling insignificant, but also feeling loved. And maybe that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I think, you know, when the two men are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're having a conversation with a a person they've just met, and suddenly they realize that Jesus Christ is walking with us and he is present in my home, right? And this, this moment of realization is so overwhelming. Like, why in the world would we be significant enough? to merit his presence, that is what Christ promises us, is that kind of presence. And it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, it, if it made sense to us, and if we expected it, then there's a problem. <laughs> so if we don't have the humility to recognize our insignificance, but also the courage to accept our significance as granted by God, um, if, we can, if we can balance that, I think, I think we can get it right.
4: I have a, um, well, there's a question from the comments that I uh, will share with you and get your response from. But first I wanna say, you started this saying you were gonna only talk about 20 minutes and but what you've put into these 20 minutes, I want to last for hours so that it will seep into my bones, into my marrow because it's so... Uh, I think you call it a healthy tension. Um, uh, it's very cosmic, kind of trippy to, to think in these um, transcendent ways and so consistent with what I sense as um, uh, the, the core of gospel, the core of meaning, the core of divinity and our engagement with it. So just, you know, thanks. Um, The question for you, I'll I'll read this to you. We often think of the earth and nature as female or mother, but you have referred to God with male pronouns throughout your amazing presentation. Have you ever encountered the feminine divine in nature? And do you experience God as gendered in any way?
2: Uh, First of all, Linda, thank you for your kind comments. Um, That's really, really wonderful. I, I, uh, I, I, I don't know. If, that's a really difficult question to answer. I, I actually don't know that I've thought of God. I think maybe in my early upbringing, certainly I thought of God as more gendered then than I do now. Um, uh, I, I think of, I've learned a lot from reading um, poets and writers who have thought about this question of the gender of God much more than I have. Um, and that's challenged me to think in, in different ways about what that might mean and what it is I've experienced in the natural world. Um, I think the struggle I have with thinking about gender in relationship to divinity is that it starts to create um, uh uh, polar polarizations in my understanding of God that, that I don't f- feel are true to God's nature. So it may be that our language is the problem. It's not, you know, God's problem. It's ours uh, that we, we, we think in such limited ways that we have to use gendered pronouns and so on. I mean, I, for me, it's just, it's just, you know, the language I learned, I'm not uh, unwilling to learn to learn a new language. Um, but I, I do feel, um, I guess I haven't done the work to intentionally think about heavenly mother in or, or the earth in, in, uh, in terms of a personal relationship. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm making any sense in answering the question. I think about a personal relationship to the earth every single day of my life. I mean, I i am intensely focused on that. I just, I don't know. I mean, I loved Joe's prayer, you know, referred to the earth as female and I I'm, I, you know, if, if I do gender the earth, it's female, certainly. Um, but, uh, I am mostly interested in, I mean, if there's a, if there's a female dimension to what I've experienced, it would be the ecological uh, condition that I've learned to meditate on and love. And I don't, I don't know if that's female or not. I, I I've read philosophies that would argue that it is. And I, and I, and I would not argue against it. I think that's quite persuasive to me, but I think when I, contemplate my interconnectedness to things um and can allow myself to um feel comfortable and not panic right i think there's a maybe a um a tendency which may be a male tendency to want to cohere and be autonomous and there's a tendency or there's an invitation to let go that nature gives me um, uh, and if that's female, then that's I guess where I would I would place it, um, uh, because it feels like a uh, it feels like a generative space. It feels like it gives life. It feels like um, it feels like a womb. I guess I, one thing I I have thought a lot about. I don't know if this is so much a personal experience, but it's more of an intellectual concept for me, and that is that. You know, we, we place a great deal of emphasis on sexual morality in the church because, as I've understood it, right, it, sex is what gives makes life possible, right? And that's one of the reasons why it it deserves careful moral attention. Um, if we were to correlate that to the natural world and ask ourselves, what are the forces that give birth to life? um and the male and the female are in there somewhere. I don't know exactly how that works, but if I look at the, if I, as I've read about evolution and I learn about atmospheric sciences and, and kind of what regulates the climate on this planet has made life possible, all of that feels to me like the, the, the sacred center of procreation, right? Mm-hmm. It is where life is emerging and that deserves our most careful moral attention, because that's what's making our lives possible. It's what's making the plants and animals lives possible and their living souls too. And if I can't, if I, if I worry myself only about the morality of human sexuality, but I can't worry myself about the morality of how we treat the earth, um, you know, then I think we're in trouble. I don't know that, that may be a, a bit of a dodge to the question, but that's actually how I think about, sexuality in and in intercourse in ecological terms, is that there's some kind of um, bringing together of forces in the natural world that make life possible. And they the, to the degree that we learn and understand those, we should be safeguarding them.
4: Thank you for that. I, I feel like your response is another continuing example of asking holy questions and uh, being comfortable with the tension that there may not be, at least in our capacity, uh, precision answers that that really can nail something down. I, I think the verses you quoted in uh, section 88 were, um, very expansive, and I'm, I'm in it, but I'm outside of it, and I'm through it, and I'm behind it, and be, before it, and it's a, a kind of way of thinking, and even if, you, if you're trying to use something as specific as gender, where the question or the comment may be, your God is too small, and that um, examining Kneeling before the holy questions is really part of the majesty of life, both mortal and eternal, I think. Well, thank you.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: Thanks. George, I'd like to pick up with a a, a, a not, I always hesitate not to contradict anything that's been said, but um, John Lyon asked a question here that I think is evocative. this section 88 in your in your presentation today describes divinity in a very large um, and paradoxical way. That, uh, as John says, can you distinguish more clearly the imminent divine that you describe from pantheism? Uh, we have in Mormon tradition, in LDS tradition. Uh, Other threads that are very, um, what would you say, anthropomorphic, very, very um, focused on a God with uh, a a body, a place, a location. And this whole this whole discussion today and Section 88 itself is um, is a different thread, a, a different approach.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks to John, you know, John, John and I were camp counselors at the Benyons boys. Ranch, So we've hiked that skyline trail together. Um, So I'm not surprised to get a good question from John. I, yeah, I actually uh, wanted to spend a little more time explaining that. I, 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 I'm still, (laughs) I confess that I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, these these tensions between transcendence and imminence, um, because I think both both ends of that spectrum, if it's a spectrum, get you into serious trouble. And uh, and pantheism, which is sort of uh, as I understand it, a kind of equation of God with the cosmos, um, it, you know, takes full confidence that we're going to learn everything we need to learn about God by just learning about the world. Um, and while that opens up all kinds of wonderful opportunities for learning that I, that I was alluding to, it, it, does, it does risk equating God, God and God's will with what happens, right? Um, and just studying evolution itself, uh, as beautiful as that story is, it's also a terrible, terrible story of unbelievable suffering and loss of life, right? It's a story of massive extinctions over millions of years of God's creatures and incredible innocent suffering. So uh, it's pretty hard to say that I can, you know, that we want to equate God's will with everything that's happening. So I don't think Mormonism is pantheistic. The best term that I have heard that I think comes close to it is panentheistic. So there's an EN between pan and theistic. And it sort of describes God in and through and around in a way that's again, sort of both transcendent and imminent at the same time. And um, that just gets a lot harder to explain. Um, But it allows us um, a little more flexibility to say that. um, I I don't know, because I'm reading about Lowell Bennion and writing about him lately, you know, he had a really simple formula. He'd said he just thought there were three. Three main causes for all things. And one was human agency, one was God, and one was nature. And the third was nature. And he didn't know which one of those three or all three of them were operating at any one time. Presumably, all three of them are operating at all times. But that that then makes it kind of complicated for us to understand exactly why things happen. And of course, his answer was. It doesn't really matter why things happen anyway. The whole point is to just know how to respond, right? Um, that was his his way of keeping things morally simple. Um, so I think for me, that's kind of how I I come out on this. I think I I believe all three are operating at all times, um, but I I'm going to I'm likely to get myself into um, theological trouble if I try to definitively place God. Um, and by, by placing him, I mean, you know, judging why things happen. Right. I, I think, I think that's a really risky business and it's risky. I mean, Christ taught us not to judge one another. Um, we also, we also shouldn't judge God, which is a really interesting um, paradox, but we should, we should have charity toward God because sometimes we have lots of good reasons to be angry at him. Um, and to be disappointed uh, that things are the way they are, and to wonder what in the world is, was he thinking you know uh, in, in putting this thing together, the way that it's put together. Um, so I don't, know, maybe, I don't know if that answers John's question, but panentheism is the closer term for what I think Mormonism is. Uh,
0: thank you. and I, I want to remind Joe and Morgan, Um, you're, you're here partly for prayers, but partly to be, to jump in with, with your own, uh, questions and comments. I, you're both muted right now, but that's, uh, you're welcome. (laughs) Thanks.
5: I'm enjoying, I'm just enjoying listening to the conversation. It's George and I've had lots of time on
0: trail to hash this stuff out. (laughs) And and, and John Lyon, by the way, says, yes, definitely God is there on the skyline trail.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Except I almost got struck by lightning on that trail, too. So (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Uh,
1: Can you hear me? Yes. I'm being told my Internet uh, connection is unstable, which maybe could be a reflection on my General sense of things right now, but uh, I, you know, I, I've I've spent my life uh, forming clay, and I've uh, another vocational pursuit of mine has been uh, pushing boats down river on water. And when you think about the elements, you know, earth, air, water, fire. The medicine wheel that I'm familiar with from indigenous uh, way of looking at things says that earth and water are the feminine axes, mm. um, and uh, air are the masculine, so I've, I've spent my life pursuing the feminine, and I, I will, I, I guess I'm going back to the things you were saying, George, about the feminine in the divine. In that prayer that I offered, I, I spoke about our beautiful Father, but I also mentioned Almighty God, and at least according to some traditions I've listened to, Almighty God is actually one of the names of, of the Divine Mother. <clears throat> and uh, I have had experiences that bring me uh, to the point where, I, as in, in Latter-day Saint uh, jargon, I can say I, I I know her. I can testify of that. And it's happened in... It's happened in nature. It's happened in the world, not in my head, not, uh, you know, but out seeking and, and not necessarily seeking her, just seeking God and realizing that I was in a, a feminine presence. It happened once on the San Juan River, sitting next to a little trickling waterfall, uh, reading from the Pearl of Great Price. And I just felt this intense presence. It happened another time sitting. Uh, next to a spring (laughs) in the mountains close by that I love. I was in a a place of crisis. I had gone to the mountains to fast and pray. And as I sat in this meadow next to this uh, spring, I became intensely aware of the depth of the soil and the literally millions of organisms that I was surrounded by but it was a feminine presence. It was very fecund. It was very, the earth was just talking to me about the life that she uh, supports and engenders. And uh, I still find myself sometimes like George falling back into the jargon that we have been given, which is a, a patriarchal jargon that relates to God. But I'm grateful to the, uh, Mm, the emerging field of, of uh, pronouns, you know, we, we list our pronouns sometimes online, and I, I have found myself more and more thinking of God as they and them, simply because it allows for mother and father, and it allows for the, their holy son, who really is the embodiment of both male and female. In his, in his incarnation, he, he really uh, had a sweet, um, what's the word I'm looking for? balance of those energies in his persona as as reported to us in the gospels anyway that's what was on my mind as you were speaking george and i and, and i guess answering that question about the gender of god yes they they are gendered <laughs> uh but but they are not a if, if there is one god being which I, I i believe more in the Godhead is taught in the restoration uh there's a lot of fluidity there too. Anyway, I think talk that out.
2: Well, I, I can't ask for more beautiful description than what you've given. And maybe uh, I resonate so much with what you're saying that maybe I, I, as, as you were saying it, I thought, well, maybe I have experienced what you, what you're describing. And I just haven't understood it in those terms as maybe I should. Um, so that's very, very moving to me and very powerful i have uh r- really loved the poetry of Catherine sontag which i think um expresses some of what you just said um in really beautiful ways so thank you
4: um,
2: thank you
0: joe thank you george especially for all that you've given us today um there are more comments and more questions and we, we could come back. But looking at the time, I'm going to suggest that we um, close in a formal way and, uh, and, and give you, George, the last, um, uh, the podium back, if you will, <laughs> for however you'd like to close us. I mean, you already have, but let me give it back to you, and then and then we'll ask uh, Morgan Davis to offer closing prayer.
2: Well, thank you. I'll just maybe say, you know, a couple two minutes worth of of, of something that I, that's on my mind. I, I alluded to it um, in my earlier comments, but I think. Um, I have believed, uh, come to believe that my own suffering, and I think Joe just described a moment of his suffering that brought him closer, um, to God through the natural world. There is something really healing and beautiful and atoning about, uh, the natural world that we come to in our moments of brokenness and need, um, and that to me is, uh, you know, I, I feel God in the temple. I feel God at church. Uh, um, I don't see these things as mutually exclusive, but there is something, uh, about experiencing that, um, proximity with God and the divine in the natural world that is, um, again, maybe because it's so unexpected, um, is so moving to me. And, and I just feel, that it's been a gift, um, that my sufferings, um, what, you know, which aren't any more than anybody else's, but whatever, to whatever degree my sufferings have been, they have brought me to nature and nature has responded. And, and that's what I believe is the, the essential, um, Christ presence of the, of the natural world that they're, that the creator is also a redeemer and um, is is both absent and very very present um, in our lives and I that's that's my certainly my testimony that that Christ um, Christ lives and uh, and is available to us um, in our moments of greatest need. So that's that's all I wanted to finish with. Go ahead, Morgan. Our loving God,
5: we thank Thee for this hour that we shared together. We praise You and love You. We present the, the work of our hearts and minds of this past hour in, in praise of You and in honor of the beautiful universe that you have made we love the the gift of wonder that has been given to us and for the opportunity to consider the works of your hands as a sign of all all of the love that has brought us into this world and the potential that we have to grow, to be like you. We ask that we might continue with this gift of wonder to consider the mystery of of your presence and the significance of this beautiful gift of life and of creation, that we might continue to ponder on it and share this gift of, of wonder and of thy love with those that we share our lives with each day. And we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: Thanks, Morgan.
4: You've been listening to the
3: Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com podcasts. Hey, this is Blair Hodges. Do you think of yourself as spiritual but not religious? Or maybe you feel more religious than spiritual. Or maybe you're not quite sure what labels fit you best because things kind of go back and forth like it depends on the day and, and you felt all of it or none of it. But most of all, you're really interested in thinking about religion, spirituality, and culture. Well, there's a seat for you at Fireside with Blair Hodges. In season one of this brand new podcast, I'll sit down with some of my favorite writers and scholars to talk about some of the best books. If you're seeking after things that are virtuous, lovely, of good report, praiseworthy, and most important, fascinating, and challenging, Fireside is for you. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are found. Season one drops later this year. Fireside is brought to you by the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University and the Dialogue Foundation, proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Learn more at firesidepod.org or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at PodFireside. I'm Blair Hodges, and I'm saving a seat for you.